Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the debate is on the age of consent. Finding Neverland, surviving R. Kelly, priest child sex abuse, and more all involve alleged young victims. It is very traumatic to go and sit before someone to actually say that this happened to me. Responsibilities that parents have to block predators. If this adult wants to spend time alone with your child, forget it. You have to say no. And what laws could change to shield the innocent. She's the only woman in city council leadership. But she won't be running for another term. I would be thrilled to see a woman run for mayor. The longest serving Philly councilwoman, her legacy, and what she's doing next. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is the age of consent. One in five girls and one in 20 boys have fallen victim of child sex abuse. And in some instances, parents are unconsciously allowing predators access to their children or even granting permission in the case of child marriage, where in some states, kids as young as 14 can be married off. You're not old enough drink, you're not old enough to get loans. If you're not mentally capable of doing those things, you're also not mentally capable of entering into marriage. That's Pennsylvania Senator John Tapatino, who sponsored SB 81 to raise the minimum age of marriage in Pennsylvania from 16 to 18. In recent weeks, the surviving R. Kelly and Finding Neverland documentaries exposed how parents were integral characters in both allowing and stopping sex abuse. So what can parents do to protect their kids? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Marcy Hamilton. She's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and she's founder and CEO of Child USA. We also have Ryan Hyde. He's a defense attorney who has represented clients who have been accused of sex crimes. And finally, we have Lakeisha Anthony. She is founder of A Survivor's Voice and is an advocate for a survivors of sexual crimes. Everybody, welcome. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. Marcy, I want to start with you. Could you explain the issue surrounding age of consent and how it is determined and why it's important? So the age of consent is the age at which someone can agree to have sex and the one who's having sex with them doesn't get in trouble. But we have different kinds of consent. There's consent to sex and then there's consent to get married. Both of those issues are hot issues right now in terms of should the age of consent for marriage really be below 18, and there's a movement to try to push it up to 18. What's the difference between 16 and 18, quickly? There's a dramatic difference. I mean, we we know that the brain doesn't even fully develop until age 26 for executive decision-making. A 16-year-old's very young, um, and an 18-year-old is at least old enough. They're old enough to vote, and they're old enough to be able to make the decision of whether they want to marry or not. The big problem in child marriage in the United States right now is many states— permit courts to let parents approve, for example, a marriage between a 9-year-old and a 50-year-old. Ryan, you've represented defendants accused of all sorts of of sexual crimes, and one of of the defenses you've used is the parental involvement. If they're married, the sex between them is not a crime. So there is some level of culpability on the parents there. What she's discussing, uh, essentially, where 
an 18-year-old can contract and do anything a 16-year-old can't. But if their parents both agree to it, they can get married and then that sex becomes lawful. In terms of parental involvement usually isn't a defense, um, especially not in the cases I have, but it's definitely another area of liability. Parents can't consent to an illegal sexual relationship for somebody, but they could also be culpable for that sexual relationship based on the statutory construction that we have now. Lakeisha, you're an advocate for survivors, and I mean, we've seen multiple uh, documentaries recently involving R. Kelly, involving Michael Jackson's, um, and the parents were extremely involved in this. What goes through your mind when you hear uh, this discussion regarding age of consent? It really makes me think about grooming processes. So ultimately, if a child is saying that they're okay with whatever experience it may be, by law, you can't consent to certain things. And if your parent is culpable, why is the parent culpable? We need to actually look into that. Why is the parent involved in it? Is it just the fact that they are not doing what they need to do as a parent? Or have they been groomed along with the child? Talk about that a little bit. So in the process where someone is actually gaining trust from those parents, someone is actually building up this relationship with those parents to the parent will trust that individual with their child to a level of that person is no longer a stranger. That person becomes a part of the family. That person becomes someone that they know and that they love and care about. And now they have liberty to be able to do things or access an opportunity to do things that they probably would not be able to do if an event that they didn't groom the parents for that. Yeah. And and Marcy, raising the age for child marriage, raising the age of consent sort of takes the parents in many ways out of the equation. In the R. Kelly case, I mean, people took their daughters to his studio to work with R. Kelly. You saw with in the Michael Jackson documentary, I mean, people allowed their children to sleep with Michael Jackson. After watching Leaving Neverland, I have never been angrier <laughs> at parents. And I think the the reason for my anger is that we have not yet penetrated the parental community to explain to them this is what grooming looks like. This is what a dangerous person does. This is why you need to be careful. You can't let your child be alone with another adult. That's a really simple statement, but it's radical for most parents. Most parents think they can trust their instincts as to who's trustworthy. But the truth is, is the ones that are most dangerous to your children are the ones who want you to think they're the most trustworthy. The priest, Michael Jackson, R. Kelly, the teacher, all of these mentors, Dr. Larry Nasser for the uh, gymnastics, yeah. parents need massive education. What we've done at Child USA is to prepare tip sheets for parents so that they know, here are the the rules you should follow, but also when you watch Leaving Neverland, here are the five lessons you should take away from it. And one of them is, if this adult wants to spend time alone with your child, forget it. You have to say no. Uh, and if you don't say no, you put them at risk, sadly. Ryan, any comment on this? Because uh, just like just based on what she just said, I, I think that's in, in any situation like this, you're going to have a swing to the pole or you're going to have swings to the poles. It's, it's eventually going to settle in the middle. I think when you say you can't have your kids be alone with any adult. I mean, I think that's swinging too far. There are opportunities out there. I think the, the particular situations we're talking about here, it's the fame of the people in most cases that kind of sets it apart. You're talking about – and I see you shaking your head and, and I think that – That's not right. <laughs> the problem is you have somebody like R. Kelly who provides a genuine opportunity. I mean, and I, I see that there's, there's definitely grooming there again. And I would say, again, these are just allegations. There is due process in this country for a reason. A lot of the stuff they're describing, he's been convicted in the media before the man's even had a trial on the issue. But when you're talking about you can't trust anyone, I think that's 
it's very difficult to be a parent in the best of circumstances, but saying that you have to turn down opportunities for your child because there may be a risk, I think that's a hard sale for a lot of parents, especially you know, two working families. They have an opportunity for their kid to get a great – uh, essentially a great boost to a potential career that could set them up for the rest of their lives, you sometimes have to take calculated risks. No, but let, so, let me clarify, right? Yeah. So I'm not saying that uh, you can't trust anybody, but I am still going to stick with the too deep rule, as it's called. No pediatrician should be alone in an examining office with a child. There should be a parent or a nurse there. No, no child should be alone in a car Cars are very frequently used for sex abuse, and I'm talking coaches to parents. No child should be alone in a confessional with a priest. There has been tremendous sex abuse in the confessional because it's closed off. Teachers need doors open. You can't close your classroom door to talk to a student. Yeah. So this is a really easy principle that we raised our kids on, and kids understand it. And to the extent that parents resist it, unfortunately— they're putting their kids at risk. You can figure there's a universe where there's always either a second adult or a door open where they're not locked into a closed space where that child is at risk. Please comment yeah. on this, Lakeisha, because so, when you hear all of this discussion about the parents and the groom, I mean. So there is a fine line because we think about students who are on sports teams who go away for the weekend with their sports team and their parent might not be able to go with them. And I think about mainly underprivileged children who their parents might not even be able to afford to send them, but yet they trust a coach enough. And granted, I know as someone who advocates for those who experience sexual violence, that that rule should be you should never, ever leave your child with someone alone. But also thinking about those opportunities that come when you allow your child to go and to participate in certain activities. We think about even dance teams. When you see a dance team, nine times out of ten, the parent is not allowed in that studio. When, but there's other students around. There are other children right, right. around. It doesn't have so to be a, the parent. It might not have to be a parent. So I can agree in that standpoint. But teaching our children, okay, not being in a room with yes. someone that's alone. Meaning just you and that person. But then when you think about mentorship as well, there's a lot of one-on-one mentorship programs that happen. How do we set boundaries around that to ensure that kids are safe? They meet in public spaces. They meet in spaces where there are other adults. There is no good system where children are safe, where they are alone with adults. It's easy the pediatricians have already moved to this model. They yeah. don't. Yeah. And, and let's just shift a little bit because I think part of the problem is that when we talk about the crimes that specifically involved young victims, um, people think that this is abuse. It has to be physically violent. They're not used to seeing the, the type of impact because a lot of times you love this person. You mm-hmm. care about this person. Mm-hmm. You trust this person. So can you talk about that portion of it, the the, I mean, Lakeisha talked about it a little bit. It's a grooming. And you don't right. even realize that a lot of times that anything that is, happening. is happening. Children don't understand sex. They definitely don't understand sex abuse. And that's why the average age to come forward about child sex abuse is age 52, based on the best science. It takes decades for most to come forward because they can't put it into context. And so they can't defend themselves, literally, mm-hmm. around a powerful and loving adult. And they often think that it's love. It's uh, 70% of abuse is happening in the family. That's our last frontier. That's one we don't talk about. But those kids are alone, and they are controlled, and they're loved, and they mm-hmm. feel loved, and that opens the door to the abuse. So what we have to do is educate the public, yeah. lawmakers. We have to open the doors to justice. 
And then we also have to remove some of those risk factors that makes it available for those individuals as well. And Ryan, provide some pushback because, I mean, people hear, I mean, because I do hear this. And then how do you, you know, you say young people can't defend themselves, but then you open the door for many, many years later. And how do you defend yourself if you're accused of something as well? well? I mean, first of all, I I think the perspective that that children don't understand sex is that's a that's from a different era. I think kids today are more educated about what's going on. I think you have a pervasiveness of the internet. Um, you have predators of both genders on the internet. Um, I, I've had to tell clients in the past that you can't trust anybody about what they're saying on the internet because ages can be they could be told wrong. I mean, for for lack of a better word, um, w- when you're talking about cases, especially like in that case where a 52 year old is talking about some sexual abuse, I mean, it's terrifying. The prospect of that a person's essentially their life can be ended because of a complaint made about something that happened 40 years ago. There's no way to prove that. And because it's such a devastating claim, um, R. Kelly is essentially ruined and he hasn't been convicted of anything. Um, I think you have television. And look, I don't know if he did it or not. I can't answer those questions because I haven't seen the evidence. I've heard what people are saying about it on TV and and TV is there to sell advertising. So they're definitely doing some sort of sensationalism. And to say that now you have to change laws and things because of something he may or may not have done, I I think due process serves a purpose here. And it's terrifying to me that something – I couldn't defend something that I did 30 years ago because, frankly, I wouldn't have the memory specific to that. Yeah. And and Keisha, you specifically testified before city council and and Ryan talked about – uh, in, in favor of a mute R. Kelly initiative here in Philadelphia. Your comments in response to what Ryan just said. Well, ultimately, for someone who's experienced sexual violence, as uh, as uh, Marcy, Marcy yeah. just said, that oftentimes you do not come forward until years later. Speaking with my own experience, I didn't come forward until 12 years after. So there should be something in place that allows for those individuals to be able to speak up. And a lot of children do not understand What's happening? It doesn't mean that they don't understand necessarily sex, but they don't understand what's happening in that particular experience. Um, there are many children when I go and educate for Women Organized Against Rape that when I actually talk about what the abuse looks like and I tell them certain things, the light bulbs go off in their head because now they're finally seeing like, oh, my gosh, this happened to me. But they would have never known that until I came into their classroom to educate them on what this looks like. But they so-called know what sex is. Well, but but the, but it's what I'm talking about is the science, the science yeah. of trauma and the science of child development and the science of child development. They don't know how to put sex into context. Mm-hmm. They really don't understand it. Um, but the same issue needs to be raised um, that needs to be raised in every one of the debates I ever have to do, which is there are rare false claims on child sex. abuse. Exactly. It is rare. And that's scientific evidence uh, children are much more likely to recant than they are to report. And I can tell you that in the 10 states that have revived expired civil statutes of limitations for child sex abuse, there has not been one false claim in the courts. Mm-hmm. Not one. I, this is what my organization does. Child USA tracks this. We know this as a fact. And so it, it's not that hard to prove sex abuse 40 years ago. One, there are very vivid memories, typically, on the part of the victim. And two, there's all sorts of corroborating evidence. And, and let, let me just say this. R. Kelly is highly likely to have done what he's accused of doing because of the victims lining up. Mm-hmm. When there is just one victim like there was when it started with Cosby, okay, maybe you didn't do it. When the victims start lining up, 
I'm sorry. If it's the same MO, he did it. And let's think about it like this. Who wants to really come forward and say I'm a survivor of sexual assault or I'm a victim of sexual assault? No one that I know of that is a survivor wants to come forward and make that claim if it's not true. And how do you I mean, I mean again, you're you're. You have vivid memories of something that happened 30 years ago, but you can't defend against that. So essentially, you are making people guilty of something without giving them an opportunity to defend themselves. I think, again, if you're talking about a speeding ticket, that's that's fine. But you're talking about taking a person's livelihood away. You're talking about taking their freedom away. And, and I get it. I, I certainly – I'm not saying that survivors of sex abuse, you know, that should be taken lightly in any way, shape or form. And I certainly understand how serious of an allegation and how – how serious it is to make that allegation. I, I was a prosecutor before. I was a defense attorney. I've seen both sides of this. It's a very traumatic experience, almost more traumatic to report it than it is to actually go through it. But at the end of the day, you're talking about there's two parties in this case, and, and they are entitled to due process because of the system that we have. And and I hear it in even in the conversation today that, that R. Kelly is guilty because all these allegations line up. It's a TV show. Um, I haven't seen anything in court yet. I haven't seen any evidence presented. Has he done some things that are questionable? Well, I don't even think you can argue that. But but you can't convict a man until you have the evidence to prove it. And let's switch back on the other side here because this is the, – the allegations usually – and we had this situation in Alabama with a, a, a senator uh, there who and, – and the allegations have been swirling for years, okay, with Michael Jackson. He had a case where he was found not guilty – uh, you also had two cases where uh, R. Kelly was able to be successful and be vindicated in those cases. And so you had allegations, but people still, I mean, there was no repercussion because, again, as Ryan said, he they were not able to prove it in court. Can you talk about that aspect of it? Because, again, there is a standard <laughs> when you're talking about court and people do well, make well, accusations. Yeah, no, but recantation, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of survivors or victims of experiences like that will recant their stories because it is very traumatic to go and sit before someone to actually say that this happened to me. And if they're young and they're actually being influenced and there's power and money and all of these other factors that are here, then that actually might influence them recanting as well. Right. Well, and Ryan's talking as though there aren't burdens of proof on the on the victim. So the victim cannot possibly bring a civil lawsuit unless they can prove what's happened to them by a preponderance. They need to prove they were at that school, that this was their teacher that, in fact, they did have a breakdown at this certain age, that they did become a drug addict. All of that has to be proven. So we're not talking about just random arguments in court. We're talking about surviving the legal requirements. With respect to prosecution, it is the highest possible level beyond a reasonable doubt. And what we know from Leaving Neverland is the reason that Jackson was acquitted is because one of his victims said, that it didn't happen. That happens all the time. Wade Robson is extremely credible. It's clear what happened to him. And Jackson was a clear predator. All of the markers are there for what parents need to understand they need to avoid. But the Jackson family will not have to pay these victims if they can get statute of limitations reform, unless they can prove their cases. And if they can't prove their cases, yeah, they yeah, lose. But, yeah. but, but that's not even what I'm talking about because, yes, I understand the burden to prove the, the case. But the problem is, is once you make this allegation public like they've done against R. Kelly, his career is ended effectively now, having not proven anything except what they put on TV. 
So when I say and, and again, I don't want to minimize these types of crimes, but at the same time, the damage on a person when just the claim comes out, you know, we are a country where it still is you're innocent until proven guilty. Um, and, and I believe in that. And I know the statistics say that there's not a lot of false claims, but I've been a part of cases where there were false claims. And, and the idea becomes at the end of the day, if if all it takes is going on TV and putting on a show like this to ruin a man's life when there's no proof, there's no burden on TV, there's no burden in the public uh, forum, sure, take them to court. Most people accused of these types of crimes are not famous. So they're right. not put on television. Mm-hmm. And so the but but still an accusation is devastating to someone. So but a lot of this is about power. Can we talk about the power dynamic, especially when you're t- when you're referring to young victims? Right. Well, I, I, I the first thing I'd like to say in response to Ryan uh, is that. I'm not going to cry for R. Kelly when this many people line up. Because what I do know is that now the whole world knows that if he is, in fact, a predator, to keep their children away from him. This is a moment of safety mm-hmm. that this public publicity does. But I just want to point out that you have a situation here, too, where the two women who are currently living with him and their parents, they all all these accusations have been swirling for years and they actually ended in, up in relationships with this man after the accusations have been public. I mean, at what point is it the responsibility of the parents once the rumors are out there, once the thing? I mean, we have and the enablers who know that this person has this stigma or potentially is a predator. What responsibility exists on the other side? And Lakeisha, you 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 testified to mute this man. So what is your thought on that? So ultimately, we see in those particular girls that they're not listening to their parents. Right. So many of them try to get their children back if the law is not helping them to do so because they have reached an age where they can make decisions on their own. Because you see the age of consent is 16 or maybe, what is it, 14 in, yeah. or 15 in some, some in some states. If an event that that child has the choice to be able to do what they want to do, then where how, how does the parent stop that? We see parents every day in our city who are trying to stop their children from doing things that they should not do. But yet when they call in law enforcement, they have no leeway. Yeah. So thinking about that and what that looks like and thinking about the amount of them being brainwashed, thinking about that they have been manipulated, thinking about that they have they realize they think they love this man. Yeah. I you mean know, because like, that's the that's the issue when you're talking about uh child victims because or young victims because even impressionable. In, a lot of the the kids wanted to spend time with Michael. They wanted to exactly. be there. The young girls wanted to be in the studio with this person and their parents wanted to appease them and and make them happy. Which goes with the point that was already said that children don't understand. They don't understand. So what do we do to protect young people from themselves from society from predators from what do we do well what we've got to start doing is looking for the markers of someone who may be dangerous to your child Mm -hmm. if someone asks to have your child sleep overnight in their bed with an adult that is screaming flashing sirens absolutely not if an adult does not want to spend time with other adults and they really much prefer all of their time with children that is a flashing sign Mm -hmm. If the adult spends a lot of time ingratiating themselves in the whole family, 
but also make sure that they orchestrate time alone. So the pri- the priest who goes into the house for dinner every Sunday and then puts the kids to bed. That is what parents need to come to understand. And frankly, parents, you are responsible for these vulnerable little children mm-hmm. who can't defend themselves against adults. Yeah. Ryan, if you're a person who works with a lot of kids, what should you be doing? You have to do the exact opposite of what he was just saying. I mean, and I tell clients this all the time in businesses and things like that. You don't hold closed door meetings. That should have gone away a long time ago. And whether or not you have a nefarious intention, the appearance of impropriety in our country has taken over for the actual impropriety. If you look like you're doing something wrong, chances are it's going to get reported. I don't have meetings with clients in a lot of situations unless I have another purpose person in the room anymore. And again, this goes back to what I was saying earlier is it's the mere accusation anymore in our country and because of social media and other things that convicts you. I'm a parent. I mean, you have to you watch out for the things that she's talking about. And I think yeah. education is very important. That doesn't mean I don't trust my kid with any adults, but it does mean that I put checks in place to make sure that she's OK. Yeah. Checks and boundaries and that we're paying attention to these type of things to ensure that our kids are safe and that we're communicating with our kids. Too. Right. And I think that's the other piece. Parents have to actually talk to their children about these things. We normally say, oh, how was your day? But we're not getting into details of what happened today. Did you meet with such and such today? How did this happen? We need to get into details because a lot of children are not telling. You think about 13 Reasons Why, that particular segment. Mm, the mm. young man was sexually assaulted. He was he had a broom stuck up his behind. And he did not tell his parent when he got home. And his parents said, how was your day? It was fine. Yeah. So but, we need to get into specifics. Yeah. Oh, I completely agree. And the, the, the key is... If a child says to you, I don't really like Uncle Joe very much, and then you say back to them, he's the funniest guy in the family. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. That's the wrong answer. The answer is, really? What? What is it you don't like? And then the child might open up and say, well, when we go to the shore, he likes to take me into the bathroom. And then you're, oh, tell me more about that. Mm-hmm. And so... We've got to start listening to kids because they send you little signals. If they think you're going to put them down, they'll retract. And also paying attention to kids because a lot of times it shows up in their behaviors. Maybe I don't want to be close to this person or I actually yeah. might want yeah. to be with this person I've heard, all the don't time. don't force kids to hug somebody. Ever. Exactly. Why don't you want to hug this, this person? <laughs> Just let them not hug them. And yeah. teaching them about proper touch, right. safe touch, right? Because ultimately some bad touches actually feel good. And we need to talk, unfortunately. Yeah. And we need to teach kids that everything, every touch, who should touch you where, why, and how. We yeah. need to have those conversations. I think it's important just to go back to one point that she said. You notice the questions she asked are all open-ended. I think you have to be very careful in just the context of certainly a criminal case is you can't be putting answers into their head. And they are impressionable and they do want to make their parents happy. And And I've seen cases where essentially – a parent has tainted a case by saying, did he do this? Did he do this? And that sort of thing can fall apart on cross-examination. And, and it it's important that you have that communicative relationship with your child, that you're not putting words into their head. You're not putting words into their mind. I think there's a huge difference between a 16-year-old and a 5-year-old. And in terms of development, in terms of understanding, in terms of access to information, if you're saying to a 5-year-old, did he touch you? The child might say yes. Um, I think prosecutors' offices use child advocacy centers. They should be using child yeah. advocacy centers yeah. for this kind of yeah. interview because those people are trained not to ask the type of closed leading questions. And I'm not talking about necessarily closed leading questions, but if I've taught my child about safe touch 
Yeah. Then when we re-enter it, that all, lesson, yeah. then it will come out in the midst of us touching based on the lesson, not necessarily yeah. leading that child. Because this is Flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up. So much reckoning is happening right now as we expose some of the pervasive sexual improprieties that have been happening in our community for generations many times. So give some advice. How do we break the pattern that has allowed young victims to fall prey uh, in, in many of these cases. The most important movement right now is to eliminate the child sex abuse statutes of limitations and open the courthouses so the victims can name their perpetrators, can shift the cost of the abuse to the ones who caused it, and can educate the public. That's a huge movement. Right now, in 2019, there are 35 states considering opening the statutes of limitations for child sex abuse. That's a lot of sunlight on a really sad and dark subject. I think we have to be careful when we open Pandora's box and let litigation that old come forward. But I I would simply say it's essentially it's an education. The families have to They have to be able to communicate with their children. I think the breakdown of the nuclear family is really hurting us, and I think parents have to take more of an interest in their children's lives. Final word, we definitely need to push statute of limitations because ultimately people who experience sexual violence, they have to live with this for their life. And then also education. Education is key. That's the other part of what I do, educating, educating, and making people aware, and then believing survivors and also making sure that resources are available. Thank you to Marcy Hamilton, to Ryan Hyde, and to Lakeisha Anthony for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Next up, she spent 20 years fighting to get women and people of color a seat at the table. Mediocrity should never be in the same sentence with our name. Philadelphia's longest-serving councilwoman, and why she says she won't be running again. All of this and more, but first, a break traffic and weather. It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames. On air Saturday evenings at 9.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the Radio.com app. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets Philadelphia residents hot under their collar is underrepresentation in business and beyond, including in politics. And one woman has used her time in Philadelphia City Council to make space at tables for women and people of color. Blondell Reynolds-Brown has served as one of the city's council persons at large for five terms. She is the highest-ranking, longest-serving woman in council, and she's made headlines recently with a big announcement. Councilwoman, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Sherry Gregg. You made a big splash all over the newspapers recently, announcing that you will not be seeking a sixth term. That is a fact. That's not myth or rumor. Why? Why? You were like at the top of the list in the last election. I I certainly was. I've been grateful and I thank voters a thousand times, but I've been successfully reelected five consecutive successful elections. Mm -hmm. And for that, I am thankful. But I, I believe deeply that we have to take stock of our lives at different points in our lives, which is what I did. My Mm -hmm. daughter just graduated from Syracuse University last June. Congratulations, uh, honors, if you will. <laughs> and um, I lost my mother 20 months ago. I'm in this space where I have, I have to know who I am, where I am, and what time it is. Yeah. And when I answered those questions through a very uh, methodical, self-analytical, self-reflective process, at the end of that self-assessment, and after I reread two books 
this past summer, I mean, this last summer, I made the difficult but necessary decision um, to not seek reelection for Philadelphia City Council. Now, while there is no perfect time to make those kinds of decisions, it's the right time for me. Yeah. And I know you are one of the hardest, probably one of the hardest working women in the city. I nine see days you, a week. Yeah. I know. Nine days a week, 37 hours in a day. <laughs> so I know you're not retiring. Not at all. In fact, retirement for me is a four-letter word, so we won't be using that word. Yeah. Um, I am not retiring, and I still want to do public policy, yeah. and I still want to do public service. I have. I am also okay with doing that work and not being elected to do it. Yeah, and it probably may free you up to 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 do a lot more. That's so very, very true, because that was one of the factors, too. I have some other things in my spirit that I want to do, and I'm not able to do them because the work of city council, the, requ- the requirement is that you're on duty nine days a week in order to do those other things that I need to feed my spirit, like write children's books. And let, let me not say write. How about finish? at least three children's books that I've started, my time will be freed up just a little so that I can pursue some other interests that I have. Yeah, so let's take a look back. I mean, you've been elected in, in the 1999, That's right? right. The, you didn't win your first race. How about Ladies, that? she did not win her first race. The first time I lost my race by 1.6 vote per division. So if two more people per division had gone to those 3,200 polling places around the city, I would have won. But I was a close six, and a close six doesn't count. There yeah. are only five Democratic at-large seats. So I lost, and I, I, even then I took stock of my career and decided, hmm, I want to be an entrepreneur. So I wrote a daycare plan. And then after I wrote the plan and began to put the pieces, the puzzle together, I thought, no, I really like public policy. Mm-hmm. So I ran again the second time around with my three-year-old daughter on my hip, yeah, and took her to every any place where two people were gathered. Mm-hmm. I was there with my daughter, and the second time around, like uh, Luther Vandross say, second time around, I got it right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, th- what did that loss teach you? That loss taught me that you never accept failure as defeat. You you're forced to do a gut check to reexamine again who you are, where you are, and what time it is. And um, it taught me to be. Always be a possibility thinker. See the glass is half full. Yeah. See the glass is half full. And, of course, uh, resistance and perseverance. You, 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 don't, you don't arrive any place in life by being a wimp or by, or by dismissing something the first time out the gate. Yeah. There's so many people who didn't get it right first time around. Bill Clinton lost his first race. Yeah. Former Congressman Bill Gray lost his first race. State Senator Hughes lost his first race. And I lost my first race. So I joined some pretty good company. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think about that. I mean, because then you you got in there and ended up the whip. How about that? <laughs> Elected by, by your my peers, peers. Cracking the whip. The only woman That's in right. the leadership team. That's right. What did that teach you? It teaches me that leadership, sometimes you have to just be ready to receive the baton, even if that was not a part of your career mm-hmm. career path. Mm-hmm. And when you're amongst a table yeah. where they are mostly men, you have to show up prepared. In fact, you have to show up overly prepared, which is why I always got a binder. Even though you <laughs> tossed the binder to the side. <laughs> but you have to show up prepared. You have to show up with a level of confidence that you two have a voice and you represent. 
you right. You're now representing 52.9 percent of the population across mm-hmm. the city of Philadelphia, and you represent the women on Philadelphia City Council. So you want to do that in a way that's respectful, uh, that's dignified, but also with a level of assurance that I too rise. To, to back it up, you know, you had a career before. You were doing mm-hmm. a lot of things before you got into politics, before you got into public service. Yes. Dancer? I did do that for a very, very long time. And when the body gets old, you t- when you, when the body gets too old, you can't perform anymore, what do you do? You teach. Yeah. So I taught all the way up until I ran for office. Wow. I sure did. I, I taught through my entire nine months of my pregnancy. I taught five hours of dance the Saturday before the Sunday I delivered. Mm-hmm. Right. I was back in the studio 30 days later with my little daughter in a buggy teaching dance again. And then when I ran for office, I taught all the way up until that December 1999. And I started my uh, role in city council January 2000. Yeah. And I've read that you said you can outwork anybody. And I probably <laughs> bring <laughs> that it. right there. Bring it. Yeah. Bring it. I, I think one quality or attribute that separates excellence from mediocrity is energy and enthusiasm about your work. And you have to be consistent. And, you know, for us as women of color, we can't show up half-stepping. No. Excellence can never be compromised, and mediocrity should never be in the same sentence with our names. Exactly. And you always show up put together, ready, (laughs) everywhere you go. And so, you know, what is your, when you look back at your 20 years in council, Mm -hmm. uh, what are you most proud of? That's such a great question. So I I would answer that this way. Women... And women's issues and being a voice for women and um, representing women in a way that makes my daughter proud. Yeah. Would be one. We've gotten and a your lot mom of work too. done for women. Yes yes yes, 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 yes. So the women, the Mayor's Commission for Women, that's Check. our work. <laughs> <laughs> the LGBTQ Commission, that's our work. The Youth Commission, that's our work. The new Office of the Environment and Sustainability, that's our work. All of that had to be approved by the voters. So yeah. I may have an idea, but when it comes to changing the city charter, you have to take it to the voters. And for all of those areas of government, that's the result of the work we've done. Dining out will never be the same again. When you go to restaurants now, there's something called nutritional information. How many calories and carbs and fats and most recently how much sodium is in your meals. Boom. We need to know that. That's our work. It took us two years to get that bill passed. Um, when you think about the Children's Fund, which was my first major piece of legislation, my first year as a freshman in Philadelphia City with Council. With a baby. With a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Today, that Children's Fund uh, is still in place. It will be in place for another 20 years. And essentially, it requires the Phillies and the Eagles, they're required by law to give $1 million per team per year for another 20 years. And that was a result of the building of the new stadiums. I was for building new stadiums because that meant short-term and long-term jobs. But I thought, if we can pay ball players these, you know, gargantuan amounts of money, then we need to do something for our children in rec centers. And so with the help of former Mayor Street and George Burrell, we successfully negotiated the Eagles and the Phillies giving up a million dollars per team per year. When they agreed to do that, I said yes to the vote. Yeah. All right. You put Helen to the fire. And um, so where where are the gaps? Where do you when you walk away from this, mm, you know, question. and you look back and you say, you know what? If I, if I really didn't have all this other stuff to do, I would fix this. What uh, would it be? Wow. We're we're currently working on a new lead bill. 
there's still mm. about 1,500 children being poisoned every yeah. single year by lead. Mm-hmm. Now, we introduced the bill in 2011 in an attempt to begin to, dem- to decrease those numbers, and we're not where we need to be yet. So next week, I'm actually having another hearing. We're casting the net wider. <laughs> another hearing on lead. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be hard because the landlord community has some very legitimate concerns. And so I'm trying to find that middle ground that allows us to raise the bar for the number of children, uh, you know, decrease the, the bar for those who will be poisoned by lead and not do it in a way that is um, uh, overburdensome to the landlord community. We have to find that middle ground. And I believe when you get smart people around the table, let's yeah. figure it out. Yeah. So lead is one issue I expect and hope to tackle by the end of the year. More importantly, to your question, however, uh, I would be thrilled to see um, a woman run for mayor uh-huh. in 2023. How about that? I'm looking at you like, could Not you be? <laughs> it's just okay. Not interested. Yeah. I work nine days a week now. That would be 12. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I would, um, I, w- I hope to be a part of that, that um, collective group of enthusiastic leaders who yearn to see a woman on the second floor of City Hall. Yeah. And um, that's a good transition to the issue of diversity mm. because, I mean, you, you, you ask people some tough questions if they're getting city contracts. And we're not where we need to be yet. Mm-hmm. We are not where we need to be. That still gnaws at my gut that we have some uh, department heads who have not embraced Mayor Kenny's vision to have a very diverse co- uh, go- a government that is both inclusive and diverse. Equi- because um, equity doesn't always equal inclusion. You follow what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so um, we are still pushing the buttons and crafting some new legislation to deepen the opportunities for MBE and, and WBEs. Why does that matter? Philadelphia is the, lar- is the largest poor city in America, 26% poverty. That is unacceptable. And the way we can, we can um, uh, chip away at that is by giving minority and women businesses contracts so they can feed their families. Yeah, and hire people. Okay, yeah. hire people from the c- local to feed their families. Let's talk about legacy mm-hmm. because, you know, one of the... the you know, um, symbols of success is who su- who got successful around you. Amen to and that. And you have a staffer who is running. How about that for at large position? How about that? Tell I us will about say her. to you that I've had I have ten staffers that I say are gone. G O N without the E, which means they're never gone from my office. Yes, we have a young man that left to go to. He's now chief of staff at LaSalle. We have a young man that left who is government affairs officers, officer for University of the Sciences. We have a young woman that left to go to the school district of Philadelphia and mm-hmm. be their PR person. Fabulous young people. So I've always believed in having a bench. Yes. You know how you have the five ball players on the court? Mm-hmm. And you got seven on the bench waiting to have the ball passed to them. Yes. So this young lady met her when she was in 11th grade. Mm. Kept in touch with her through her, her undergrad and graduate experience. When she graduated, she asked if she could come back and volunteer. Absolutely. We love volunteers. And so when a position opened up on staff, typically you go first to those who have given their time freely. And so we offered her director of constituent services. She was excellent. We then promoted her to a legislative aide when Joe Mead left to go to LaSalle. 
we promoted her to legislative aide, and then she was legislative director. And then my chief of staff left to go to University of the Sciences, so we promoted her to staff director. And the last four years, she's been my chief of staff. She is a superstar. She's smart, and she's ready. Girls high girl, for sure. Um, who Fellow is alum. ready. Thank you very much. Philadelphia <laughs> High School for Girls, shout out. <laughs> Who's ready to receive the baton. She's been on the ground in city government for 10 years. So she will hit the ground running if she is blessed to come to Philadelphia City Council. And you're she supporting is so awesome. Her. I am her surrogate candidate. For those who do not know, her name is Catherine Gilmore, Gilmore Richardson. Richardson. You know, as we close this interview out, there's big races coming up. Mm-hmm. Lots of people have thrown their their hats in the ring for this uh, at, at large. large. Only 33. Yeah, only 33. But I don't pay attention until you get your uh, signatures there and you, you get on the ballot, boo. <laughs> You ain't on Good the ballot. That doesn't mean anything. Amen to that. So hey, that's see the first test of the of the seriousness of a candidate and the capability of a candidate. Yeah, because going outside your house and saying I'm running doesn't, doesn't everybody get you can do there. that. And you need one thousand legitimate, bona fide registered Democrats. Which means voters. you probably should get a few thousand just to make sure. Always make <laughs> well, we always got ten thousand signatures whenever I ran, and Kathy has over forty five hundred signatures. Of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how you do it. Move that bond out the way. So uh, my, my final question to yes. you uh, is, you know, what do you think will be the, the top three issues and or deciding factors when it comes to such a wide field of people running for oh, at large? That's such council? a great question. So there's something called councilmatic prerogative. Yes. Which comes up every single year. Yeah. Uh, however, for those of us who know the city charter, we know that that prerogative is written in the city charter. So while there may be many who believe that that should not be a continued practice, um, my view is that that's probably unlikely because that is a stated practice and um, policy in the Philadelphia City Charter. Again, broadening and deepening contracting opportunities in certain communities like the African-American Chamber of Commerce, certain forums will have conversations about MBEWB activity. While we're doing better as a city on crime, so the numbers say... I think we still should do more when it comes to those who are returning citizens. Yeah. And and we're, we're, we've, moved, we've moved the bar. You know, we our uh, prison commissioner is a woman. Yes. Isn't that awesome? Yes. And so we've closed uh, one of the prisons up on State Road. So we need to say thank you uh, to Councilman Jones and Councilman Kenyatta Johnson and the mayor for that. Uh, so crime will always, always bubble up to the top because we're an urban community. Yeah. And then lastly for us is what, and what more can we do to ensure an educated workforce that includes opportunities in the trades? Because there's so many sustainable wages, jobs that you can get by having skilled trades. Mm-hmm. And the city is doing better with that as well. I know that uh, because you will be celebrating some amazing women later this month. Yes, 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 yes. In yes, city yes. council. It is Women's History Month. So the last Thursday of this month, we're going to celebrate 20 women who are active in the philanthropic community. Thank you so much. And congratulations on an amazing legacy. And I know you still got a whole rest of the year to go. So 10 more months do a lot of work. (laughs) Next up, he's opening doors in the trades. Show our young people that, hey, you can do it. Our Northwest Philadelphia man's nonprofit is transforming lives and communities at the same time. We'll be right back. 
It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames. On air Saturday evenings at 9.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the Radio.com app. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community. There are many organizations that try to better the city, but there is one that's making a difference for adults, children, and the surrounding area. They offer training and entrepreneurial programs while restoring Philadelphia neighborhoods from within. Here to tell us more about Trades for a Difference is Executive Director Jordan Farini. Welcome to Flashpoint, Jordan. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yes. And, uh, you know, just so folks know, I've seen Jordan out there grinding for months and you I finally got you in on Flashpoint. Yeah, we've crossed paths a lot. Yeah. You know, we've ran into each other multiple different places. It's definitely great for us to be able to finally connect and come on to the show. Definitely. And so for folks who have never heard of it, tell us what you guys do. Absolutely. So Trades for a Difference provides workforce development and skills training around the construction skills, as well as with an emphasis on entrepreneurial learning. Our workforce development programs help develop work skills for our young people to create jobs and pipelines for them into the construction industry. We put a major emphasis on the entrepreneurial learning aspects of the trades as well. Often people are quick to correlate the trades with just hands-on and dirty and dusty, and they often overlook all of the other opportunities and all the other skill sets that are within the trade room. So we really pride ourselves in being able to not only push our young people into the workforce, but also to be able to promote the future leaders of tomorrow. And you focus a lot on people of color. Absolutely. Not because we're not all inclusive, but because that's where there's a lot of need. And there's a lot of disadvantages and a lot of disparity in terms of inclusion and minority representation in the trade. So we wanted to promote something and put something together that could ultimately help level the playing field. Yeah, and you guys are based in Germantown, right? So we are based in the Northwest. Northwest. So mm-hmm. our home right now is in East Mount Airy. Uh, we're a Northwest grassroots organization. We do have our second location that's actually getting ready to be in East Germantown as well. Got it, got it. And you've done a lot of, made a lot of initiatives happen, made a lot of change happen in actual buildings and all kinds of stuff. Y'all have been busy. We've been busy. Um, At the core of what we do is entrepreneurship. And as an entrepreneur, we're always trying to figure out ways to leverage and do more with less or be able to double leverage or triple leverage one thing to be able to affect multiple outcomes. And ultimately for us, that means just being able to do a lot of good things in the community and fill a lot of areas of need. And one of the good things you did that made headlines was y'all hired like a trash truck. We yeah, we went out and purchased a commercial grade dump truck. We did that for multiple reasons. One, because there was a need in our community. There's a lot of trash throughout the community, and there's a huge, huge need for that trash to be removed. But we also figured we would double leverage, triple leverage that trash truck to create other low barrier to entry jobs for young people in our community. So we're doing different cleanup initiatives, and we're doing demolition services, and we're actually even renting out. Uh, dumpsters to those in need, similar to like, you know, you got junk or we haul trash type of uh, business model, but 100% of those proceeds go to a charitable organization. So we figure out a bunch of ways to create revenue streams to be able to fund what we do, but then also create low barrier to entry jobs for our young people. 
because when the young people come into our construction trade program, they're in need of an opportunity. But often, once they complete the program, there's a layover period. You typically just don't go straight into work. Yeah, and that keeps them, you know, out of trouble and keeps them growing because you guys are still teaching them more skill sets Absolutely. and all that kind of stuff. So where do you get all this fire from? Because every time I see you, you're always like, you got high energy, you're ready to go. I think I really get it from my mom. My mother was a really hardworking single parent when I was growing up, and I learned a lot of my, my work ethic and my tenacity and my grit and my resilience from my mother. It jumped into me and my brothers and my sisters as well because every day we would watch our mom just work so hard and her work ethic and her grit. And what's your and mom's name? My mom's name is Donna Farini. So Miss Donna out here grinding. Miss Donna's out here grinding. She's always been a hustler. She's always been someone that can make something out of nothing. Wonderful. And so that's kind of what you were teaching so many young people to do. Absolutely. Ultimately, what we're trying to do is show our young people that, hey, you can do it. We yeah. did it. You can do it, too. Through hard work, you can do anything you put your mind to. Now, is this just your day job or is this your is this one of the jobs you have? I've spent a lot of time developing different trade-based companies, but throughout the years, my passion has always been trying to get back to my give-back culture and get back to teaching and providing resources to the community. So, Saying all that to say, now I do this basically 100% of the time. I have other organizations and other businesses, but they operate without me. That's entrepreneurship at its finest. That is. Well, you don't even have to be there. That's right. So um, you guys, do you raise money? Uh, I, obviously, people are working. You charge people and use the money to fund what you do. But can people donate and support you? Absolutely. There's a lot of different ways to support us through volunteerism, through donation, uh, we really pride ourselves in being able to make a lot happen off of a little. Um, we're always looking for donations. We're always looking for employers. There's a bunch of ways to support us. Wonderful. Do you guys have anything coming up? We have a lot of things coming up. So we have our big cleanup initiatives that are getting ready to roll out in part with our Fresh Start cleaning campaign and beautification campaigns in Germantown, we're releasing those via our social media and our websites and business planning classes that are rolling right now as we speak, but we have another cycle that's going to be rolling out in about eight weeks at our Community Learning Center in East Mount Airy. Uh, we have a bunch of different volunteer efforts and what we call Projects with Purpose, where we're helping to provide resources and repairs for low-income seniors, uh, disabled veterans, and single parents living below the poverty line throughout the city. Those happen on a monthly basis. And a list of a lot of other things that can all be found on our website or will all be announced on our social media. They can find us at www.tradesforadifference.org. We can be reached at our office at 267-270-5095. We also can be found on all of our social media outlets at, at Trades for a Difference. Wonderful. And so what keeps you motivated? What keeps you going? I wake up earliest, you know, 5 a.m. <laughs> success, 6 a.m. success. I mean, what keeps me motivated is just ultimately just the give back culture. And yeah, I get tired. Yeah, sometimes I'm stressed, but I always find that energy to keep going by being, you know, motivated by seeing how it's affecting others. And also, of course, God, you know, without God, none of this is possible. Yeah. He's definitely had his hand in this. So I've been blessed. I've been all around the world and around the country in the construction industry. The biggest thing that I'm always noticing is when I look around the room in these high places, I don't see a lot of people who look like me. Yeah, yeah. I don't see a lot of people who come from similar walks like me, and I want to do something to change that. Wonderful. So check out Trades for a Difference. Jordan Perini, thank you so much for coming in the Flashpoint, and good luck with everything you're doing. No problem at all. Thank you so much for having me.
it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast for exclusive content using the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. Simply search Flashpoint KYW. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As Irish philosopher Edmund Burke once said, the greater the power, the more dangerous the abuse. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.